Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Addicted to Crime. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, you guys, I'm back with another episode. Listen, I've read a great book, and I know that's how I normally start this podcast, but I am seriously finding some gems lately, and that's where I'm getting, like, all of these insane cases. Anyway, the book that I found is called To the Last Breath by Carlton Stowers. It's a very, very popular book, and if you're going to Google uh, the subject of our case today, Catherine Renee Good's name, this book is the first thing that's going to pop up. Now, I don't want to confuse anyone during this episode. There's a lot of names that I'm going to be mentioning and throwing out at you, and a lot of people are going to go by their middle names. Now, Catherine Good went by her middle name of Renee, so I'm going to call her that during this episode. And there are other individuals, too, that I use their middle names instead of their first, and that's normally, like, the general consensus that I'm finding. That's what they go by. That's what they associate themselves with. And so I just wanted to give you a heads up right away before I begin, just so you guys aren't confused and you know who I'm talking about through this episode. As you saw by the title, this episode is about two-year-old Renee Good, January 1994, her life is tragically taken, and at first, it looks black and white. But as we get a closer look, it becomes more tragically apparent who is responsible. Let's dive into the case. Before we begin this episode, I want to open with a brief disclaimer. During this episode, there will be mention of subjects that may be disturbing to some listeners, including animal abuse and child abuse leading to death. Listener discretion is advised. All right, let's hop right into this case. We're going to start out by talking about Renee Good's parents. Let's first start with Renee's dad. Michael Shane Good, and we're going to be calling him by his middle name, as that is what he mostly goes by, of Shane. Shane was working as a postal worker in the spring of 1987. He had spent a few years in the Army serving stateside. He'd been married, become a father recently, or he had become a father, and was recently separating from his wife at this time. And it was during the events of spring break 1987 that Shane met Annette Tollette. Annette was a beautiful, tall woman with brown hair and a winning smile. She was also divorced from an abusive man and had fled the marriage with her one-year-old. At this time, Annette was doing work as a bookkeeper for a car rental agency business, and she was comfortable. Annette hated the large crowds and was only at this excitable spring break beach party at the request of her cousin, who just wanted to see what it was all about. It was at this beach that Shane and Annette ran into each other at the beach that day. Shane swept Annette off her feet with tales of life in the military and his simple life, and Annette found herself just completely in love with the stranger. They exchanged numbers that day. 
And doesn't this, like, just sound like a Hallmark movie to you? It does to me, too. But it starts like a Hallmark movie, you guys, but it's going to end like a Lifetime movie. Just wait. Shane called Annette almost immediately, and the two began a whirlwind relationship with each other. They'd go out on dates. He'd buy her flowers all the time. He'd leave her notes and sweet talk her. And Annette was just soaking it all in. She wasn't used to this type of a relationship. And she felt like Shane was different than her previous relationship. Also, Shane seemed to, like, actually love kids. He doted on Annette's daughter, and he talked fondly of his own daughter from his previous marriage. He seemed like the perfect all-around guy, honestly. In May of the same year, Annette and her now two-year-old daughter moved in with Shane in his mobile home in the suburb of Pasadena. It wasn't long after they moved in together, though, that they started talking about marriage. However, when they finally got engaged two days before the wedding, Shane wanted to postpone the wedding, and get, and he got cold feet. Shane said that they're going to go, they're going too fast, he didn't want to rush it, stuff like that, you know, typical excuses. And Annette at first thought it was weird, like the wedding was his idea in the first place, but she didn't want to question it. Annette's mother, though, a woman named Sharon Couch, found this odd and really didn't like Shane's behavior. When Sharon was around Shane, he didn't really engage her in any conversation, but she saw that her daughter loved him and her granddaughter loved him, so she didn't really feel like it was her place to speak up or say anything, and so she didn't. Shane started having some controlling tendencies as well. He started wanting Annette to only hang out with him and not hang out with any other friends or family. When she did hang out with other people, he would kind of whine about it and be like, oh... I, I don't want it to get in the way of us, yada, yada, like, which we know it's, it's very common behavior from controlling partners, right? And it, it is a tactic to isolate you from your other loved ones and make it seem like that person is the only one who's there for you, the only one who loves you. We see this kind of behavior all the time. Two months after this, the canceled wedding was back on, and instead of a huge big wedding with friends and family, only Annette, Shane, Sharon, and Annette's daughter, Michelle, were there. None of Shane's family were there, which seemed very strange to Shannon. And it wasn't long into their marriage that Annette started noticing another side of Shane. Shane was never physically abusive, but he enjoyed mentally abusing her all of the time, and he loved exercising his authority over her. He was always insanely jealous of Annette's friends, and he accused her of not loving him when she would hang out with her friends, you know, which wasn't very often. The guy who used to buy her presents, flowers, leave her sweet notes all the time, he would never really give her any special attention now that they were married. Even at things like birthday parties, he would never get her anything, stuff like that. One thing, too, is shortly after they were married, Annette had become pregnant, but Shane kept pressuring her, saying they weren't ready for a child between the two of them, and it just wasn't the right time, and this and that, and he pressured her to get an abortion. And this behavior and this this realization that he didn't want any kids with her, it was really puzzling to Annette, and she was just beside herself with her grief, but she never shared any of Shane's faults with her mom, Sharon. She just kept her feelings inside. She dealt with them herself, and she really did keep her feelings bottled up and away from her mother, who really didn't suspect anything. Let's talk a little bit about Shane's former marriage. If he's acting like this with his second wife, like pretty early on, 
were there warning signs in his first marriage? And as there always is, yes, there was warning signs as it turns out. Shane was married to his high school sweetheart, Sandra K. Good, called K um, by her friends. And K knew Shane in high school and knew she wanted to marry him. She spent six years with him after their high school graduation as husband and wife and viewed all of this weird behavior. Shane had a sick sense of humor and he was also very cruel at times. Now, this is a trigger warning for you if you don't want to hear this little part. I'm going to mention animal cruelty, so skip ahead for a minute uh, if you don't want to hear it. I don't blame you. It's pretty gnarly. All right, so Shane told Kay a story one day about how he was younger and he used to take small holes and dig small holes in the ground. And then what he would do with these holes is he would catch the stray cats around the neighborhood and then he would put the cats in the holes, fill the holes up to the cat's neck with dirt so only the cat's head was exposed above the ground. And he would then decapitate the cat by driving the lawnmower over them. Yeah, like we're already, what, like <laughs> uh, eight minutes into this story and you're already seeing that this guy is just like a piece of garbage. Like, oh my goodness, it's a horrible story. But Kate, okay, Kate, excuse me, never knew if this was true or not. Let's hope it's not true. But either way, like he's obviously telling these six stories super excitedly. Like he wasn't bothered by them at all, which even if it is a lie, that's still concerning that he would feel like it's okay to lie about that. Now, there was an instance of physical violence against Kay, which caused her to finally leave him. The couple was arguing in the parking lot, and it got heated. Shane slammed his fist into the left side of his wife's head, and when she turned to run away, he grabbed hold of her earrings and ripped one of the earrings out of her ears. A witness who saw what was going on, the store manager at the store they were at, stepped out of the building, calmed down the situation, and told Shane to take her to the hospital. At the hospital, Kay has suffered from a perforated eardrum and had lots of bleeding from her ear. Thankfully, like that was what she needed. She realized at that moment she needed to get out, she needed to get away from Shane, and she took her three-year-old daughter with her and filed for divorce. For the assault on Kay, Shane was sentenced to only a year's probation, and she had to pay Kay, or he had to pay Kay, excuse me, $480 for child support every month. Now, Shane was devastated by having to pay this amount on child support, and he soon realized he didn't have, like, enough to make the payments, and instead of get a job or a second job to try and make it work, he put the pressure on his current wife, Annette, just to kind of figure out their financial situation for him, and he wanted her to get a better job um, than her bookworking job, like a better paying job, so that he could make these payments to Kay for child support. So he's kind of like putting the pressure on her now instead of fessing up to his responsibilities and doing it himself, you know, which is just crappy. So Shane had like this crazy attempt um, to kind of like this crazy get rich quick scheme. And he was like in this financial black hole, right? And, and what he did was he arranged for Annette's brother, Stephen, to steal Shane and Annette's car while the couple was out for a night at a club. So when they came out, Shane acted all surprised, like he called the police, he filed a claim with his insurance company, and he managed to get a payout of $13,745, all for this fake car stealing 
scheme that he had with his brother-in-law. Now, Steve would later tell the story and say that he and Shane split the money when they sold the car to a chop shop. So Shane profited from the car then too, as well as the insurance payout. The couple started fighting more and more at this time, and even Annette's younger or Annette, excuse me, younger daughter Michelle would talk about Shane and her fighting to her grandma. She would tell them, you know, mom and Shane are unhappy and they're fighting and this or that, and it was becoming obvious to everyone that it just was not a healthy marriage for the two of them. And it just was not a happy union. Around Christmas time, um, Annette told was told by Shane that he wanted a divorce. And it kind of came out of nowhere for her. And she begged him, you know, at least wait until after Christmas so Michelle could have a good Christmas. Like, she was hoping, um, you know, she could smooth things over. Like, whatever made him upset. She'd work on it. She'd work on herself, this and that. Because she just did not want to lose Shane. And so Shane agreed and finally around Christmas time, he surprised her and Michelle by telling them that he wanted to go out and pick out some Christmas decorations for the house and then he wanted to get a tree and decorate it with her and Michelle. And I was like, Michelle was encouraged by this, you know, hoping that she could change his mind. And I'll admit like when I was first reading this, I was like, okay, this is weird. It's really out of nowhere. And Annette thought it was out of nowhere, too. Like, she'd been keeping the house clean. She felt all this pressure on herself to keep the house clean for Shane, to do this for Shane, do this and this, cook his favorite meals, do whatever she had to do to make him stay, which is super heartbreaking, and I hate that. But Michelle, Annette, and Shane went to the mall that day, and they bought a Christmas tree, lots of decorations and ornaments, and then they went home to decorate their house for the holidays. Now, the day after Christmas, while Michelle and Annette were... Um, gone like for the day Shane was left at home and he took everything from the house so he literally stripped the tree of everything that was on the tree he took all of his stuff out of the house all of the decorations and he just left he would later say that he was just taking like what belongs to him which is so disgusting but he totally did it to be controlling and hurtful like many domestic victims before her, Annette was just so attached and she felt so in love with Shane that she blamed herself for his leaving her. Everyone else was like, no, you're better without him. Like, just let him go. He's not worth it. He's not good to Michelle and you. But Annette just could not see it. A month after Shane had left, he got back in touch with her and asked if they could meet up. So Shane told her that he missed her and he missed Michelle. He was just overcome you know, with grief. That's why he, like, le- not grief, but, like, just his feelings, I guess, and that's why he left. He asked if he could come back. She told him how much she loved him, how much she had missed him, and she also shared with him, you know, like, how hard it was for her to take care of Michelle on her own and take her college nursing classes and to have her job and pay the bills, and she's like, you know, I've really missed your presence here. Like, I've missed you, but after she said all those things, Shane, like, sat up said that he was thinking about getting back together with her but he wasn't going to anymore like which is horrible and he said like because of her attitude he wasn't going to get back together with her like how how just horrible is that like he's bringing up her feelings he's giving her hope and then he's crashing them down again and then he told her that he wasn't coming back Annette was just really struggling financially and she couldn't manage the payments anymore so she sold all of her furniture and she and her daughter moved in with her mom, Sharon Couch. 
Annette felt defeated. She fell at the end of her rope. She just felt completely helpless, and Sharon could see how worn down her daughter was, and it just broke her heart. And this is kind of where Annette flies into, like, this weird kind of circle. So she lives with her mom. She saves up money. She moves out. Then she needs help again, comes back and lives with her mom, saves up money, and moves out. But she is trying. She is trying to give her daughter the absolute best home that she can. So she does live with her mom for a little bit. She saves enough money to move out, like I said, and she gets a condominium of her own. But when she starts her life again, she goes into the condominium and this is a fresh place for her and Michelle, who shows up, but Shane. Shane shows up again, begging to be brought back in, and she accepts him because she's still in love with him and she has this vision of this perfect family. So Shane came back into their life, but he had another violent outburst. And Annette finally had the courage to tell him, you know what, take your key and just don't come back. I can't deal with you anymore, which good for her. However, she found out shortly after this that she was pregnant again. And this is a whole other ballgame. So she decides to call Shane. She feels like he has a right to know. She just wants to let him know. She told him he, she didn't want anything from him. Uh, she didn't want, you know, him back in her life. But she just felt like he had the right to know. So Shane wanted her to meet with him, and then when they were together at his apartment, he told her he wanted her to get another abortion. He said he didn't want to have a baby. He accused her, even, of not wanting this baby, and he said if the baby's born, it's going to be harder for us to get back together, which, again, is, like, such a selfish thing to think of. Like, how horrible is he? Like, oh, we can't get back together. Like, oh, I don't know what I feel about this guy, but he just makes me so mad. And Annette's like, whoa, whoa like cool it man I want this baby I don't want you so I'm just telling you like I don't want to get back together with you but Shane reportedly said he didn't want anything to do with the baby and as far as he was concerned the baby wasn't even his he didn't care about the baby and he'd always refer to this baby as Annette's child he said he wouldn't help with any financial things for the baby or offer any kind of support kind of get out of my face type of an attitude and Annette left and she was more than happy to get away from him and start her own life with Michelle and this new little baby. Catherine Renee Good, called Renee by her mother, uh, and so I'm going to call her Renee, was born on August 27, 1991. Sharon attended her granddaughter's birth and was standing by Annette's side, and Renee was born by a C-section, and she was such a sweet little tiny baby. Annette and Sharon finally felt at peace, and it was after Renee's birth that Annette finally filed for divorce from Shane, who hadn't even seen his daughter yet. When it was finally time for the two of them to go to court to finalize the divorce, for a while, like, he didn't even appear until finally the divorce papers were served via proxy, meaning the divorce papers would be given to, like, Shane's employee or his boss, who was then hired to give them to Shane himself since he was, like, conveniently never in the area when the papers were being served to him. But, you know, who... Can you believe, like, at court, he makes this whole scene, Shane does, and he refuse, refuses to even believe that the child belongs to him. He says he doesn't even believe that he's Renee's biological father. Well, that's easy to prove, and court DNA tests do prove that Shane was, in fact, Renee's father. Now, Shane is ordered to pay child support, but he wanted visitation rights, much to Annette's dismay, 
And it's like, why did he all of a sudden want to see his child? Well, as I am sure you can imagine, maybe like one-tenth of the reason was because he wanted to see his child and like have a relationship with her. And I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. Like, I really don't feel like he cares about her at all. But in my opinion, it was more of a snub move. It was like, you know, Annette made him do this. He forced, quote unquote, this child on him. So he's going to make life harder for her by visiting the child, knowing full well that it would upset her and make her feel uncomfortable. And later on, we do find out that this is why Shane did this in the first place. It was very much a snub nose move to Annette and it hurt her and it very much hurt her that that he got to see the child because as you're going to see the child does not have a very good relationship with him at all the first visit with Shane and little Renee took place in Sharon's home and when Shane was there he just sat on the couch making small talk with Annette while the kids played he never touched or held Renee and that really hurt Annette like she's feeling such a confusing range of emotions like in the beginning she wanted Shane there she wanted Renee to have a relationship with her father because she knows how important that is Annette didn't have much of a relationship with her own father so she wanted her daughter to have a good relationship with hers but at the same time she knows how toxic Shane's behavior can be. She doesn't want her children to have any part of that, and she still doesn't trust him. So she's feeling this, like, huge mix of emotions, and she's just not sure how to feel. As the months went on, Shane would randomly message and ask if he could see Renee, or if Renee and Michelle could come over to his parents' house and play with his other daughter. And, like, he just wanted to form, like, all these play dates and stuff. And the, the girls enjoyed that, like, except for Renee. Renee doesn't seem to enjoy that that much. But Michelle and his other daughter, Tiffany, the other daughter that he had with his first wife, Kay, they got along really well, and the girls did like it. But at first, Annette didn't notice anything out of the ordinary. But then, like I said, she realized that Renee didn't seem to want to go to her dad's house. She didn't really want to spend any time with him. And not only that, but when, when Renee would come back from spending time with Shane, she'd be very quiet, she wouldn't act herself, and she seemed very withdrawn and not like a normal two-year-old at all. And that really, really bothered Annette. But she didn't know what to do. She had to stand by the court order or else, you know, maybe Shane would take her back to court in a heartbeat for a contempt of court charge. And that would risk her losing her babies completely. And people who are also struggling with this, like, I can't imagine what you're going through sharing custody with an abusive spouse. I cannot imagine. In the book, Annette mentions how the thought of running away with her kids and fleeing the country entered her mind because it just made her physically sick and distraught whenever Shane would take the girls. But not only he had did he have visitation rights, but he he could he was at okay. Here's the thing: like he has visitation rights, but if she refuses him even once, he could take her to court, and he could take all of her custody. So it's just this fine line that Annette found herself walking, and it just stresses me out um, thinking about it. Annette would send Michelle with Renee because you know she figured Michelle was older. She could play with Shane's older daughter, but also she felt like Michelle could be like her ears. She could make sure everything was going smoothly, make sure that Renee was okay, and just have this entire thing where, okay, Michelle, you know, I need you to watch out for Renee, make sure she's okay, make sure everything's all right. And little Michelle, she loved her sister and she always kept a careful eye out to make sure everything was okay when they were on these play visits with Shane. 
Annette was trying to move on and start a relationship with a man named Vince. She had confided in him about her past struggles and her struggles with Shane and her uncomfortableness with him and the children. And Vince was the caring, kind man she had always wanted but never had. He told her he'd watch out for her and the girls, and he also said he would give Shane space, like out of respect, and not purposely provoke him. But he also said if Shane caused harm to her or the girls, he would 100% step in and take care of them. He was like her knight in shining armor, which is just what Annette needed at this time. The two actually got married secretly, and the reason they kept it a secret is they didn't want anything to come back to Shane. They didn't want Shane to have anything to use like as an extra excuse to take Annette to court or explode on Annette or the kids. She was that afraid of him that she didn't know how he'd react, that she kept her marriage a secret to everyone around her so word wouldn't get back to him. Like, you guys, that's how scared of Shane she is. One time, Shane had the kids for a sleepover when Annette got a phone call in the middle of the night. Michelle was calling, and Michelle told her that Shane was gone. His stepmom and dad were asleep in another room, but Shane had given them instructions not to bother him, and Renee was crying. She was upset. So Annette went into full mama bear mode and drove straight to Shane's parents' house to assess the situation. Shane still wasn't there when she got there, and so she took the children back to her place and then went about trying to track down Shane. She finally tracked him down, and he told her that she shouldn't have freaked out like his parents were there, but this set a fire in Annette, and she finally decided that she had had enough. She was going to her attorney about this to hopefully stop these visits. Unfortunately, her attorney couldn't do anything about this. The attorney said technically Shane didn't do anything wrong because his parents were still in the home, and if she attempted to remove his visitation rights over this, he could counter it and create a whole mess in court that could end with Annette not being able to be with her children. So it was all a mess. Annette tried to tell her attorney about her suspicions with Renee not wanting to be with her father and her worry that he might be molesting or abusing her, but her lawyer again said they couldn't legally do anything because she had no proof. But the lawyer did, like, suggest to carefully check Renee before visits with her dad, and then after the visit with her dad, take her immediately to the doctor to get everything checked out, which, like, doesn't that just make you sick to your stomach? Can you imagine how Annette would feel having to surrender her daughter to someone she suspects is molesting or abusing her? Her two-year-old? I can't imagine at all, and it makes me just furious that this is the family court system but honestly like what else could Annette do at this time she really couldn't do anything and this is how when parents talk about running away with their children like I get it okay I get it because there's nothing she can do except for just abide by this court ruling and it can't get her daughter out of there all she really did tell her lawyer that the lawyer could do anything about was that Shane was behind on payments. And so her attorney could work on that and went to work on addressing that. So let's talk about the day of Renee's death. And another trigger warning, this is really sad, you guys. Like, all child deaths are horrible, and I hate talking about them. But just a trigger warning, if you want to skip, um, uh, here is your warning right now to do that. 
One day, Shane's other daughter, Tiffany, remember Tiffany is the daughter of Shane and Kay, called Annette at her home. And Tiffany begged for both of uh, Annette's daughters, Renee and Michelle, to come over. She wanted them to come over. She wanted them to have a sleepover with her. And so Shane got on the phone after Tiffany asked and asked if the girls could spend the night, you know, typical kid stuff. And But Renee hadn't been feeling good a few days prior. She had fell and hurt her head while riding her tricycle. But a trip to the ER, uh, that after that was done, the doctor assured her she was fine. And so this is in Annette's mind, right? Like, okay, Renee's not feeling well. Ugh, should I send her? Should I not? Also in Annette's mind is, you know, I hate sending her to Shane's anyways. So she was kind of making excuses like why, like, hmm, maybe I just shouldn't send her. And I relate like to that, to the ER visit it's so hard as a mom to a three-year-old and a two-year-old, like lots of hustle and bustle from kiddos like that. They fall, they hurt themselves. And those ER visits are super stressful and not fun at all. However, Renee, or excuse me, not Renee, Annette was like kind of talking to herself and she was like, okay, well, you know, it's been a few days ago. Renee seems good now. She's playing normal all day today. And she was very indecisive about whether or not she should let Renee go. She didn't want to, again, but she didn't want to be accused of keeping Renee from her father, giving him more ammunition. So, as you can see, again, Annette's hands are tied, and this happens very often in the legal system, not just on the mother's side, but it can happen on the father's side as well. Taking a break from this story real quick, one thing that just hopped into my mind that I want to reiterate really fast is, remember, there are good dads and there are good moms, much like there can be bad dads and bad moms. I know you all know that, but I feel like a lot of the time we hear cases like the deadbeat or abusive dad, like why can't the court system help the mom, give the mom custody, but on the other side of that, a good quality loving dad can, can fight the same battles. I know of many cases that the dad is the main provider and he loves the child and he'll provide the child a fantastic home, but the court system is more focused on placing the child with the mother not the father, which is wrong too, like to have that bias. And honestly, that's not talked about enough. In my home state of Wisconsin, we are very, very pro-mom and very mom-leaning over dads here. And that's just sad, like that shouldn't be the case. The court really should make the decision on who is best for the child, that specific child, not all children, case by case. And and that's just my little rant, like it has nothing really to do with this episode, but I didn't want to go on about bad dad, bad dad, and not acknowledge that there are some very, very good dads out there, but in this case, the dad happens to be, like, the worst in the world, but I just wanted to, like, reiterate that real quick. I know y'all know it, but it just hopped into my mind, so I wanted to share it with you guys. Annette, in the end, did decide to let her daughters go to Shane's house that night, and this is a decision Oh, that would cause her so many sleepless nights and agonizing days for the rest of her life. So Annette told Vince her worries about Renee going over there and how she was worried about the girls, but she was going to let Michelle and Renee over. And Vince assured her that, you know, it's fine. Michelle can keep an eye out for her little sister. The girls will be just fine. And the day was Saturday, January 22nd, 1994. Now, later, Shane came that evening around 6.30 and picked up both Michelle and Renee 
And of course, Michelle was really excited. Renee seemed more cautious and quiet, which, you know, again, gave Annette a really weird feeling. She hated sending her with Shane. She knew she didn't want to go. And she hated sending her daughter somewhere where she knew her daughter went, didn't want to go. But again, she had no choice. Before Shane had gotten there to get the girls, Annette had bathed Renee, looked her over for any bumps, any bruises, or anything that looked out of the ordinary like she'd been told, and she hugged her little girl close. Renee was wearing purple sweatpants and a flower pullover t-shirt, and for bed, Annette packed her favorite nightgown. She loved wearing this nightgown. It was her absolute favorite. Renee and Michelle waved goodbye to Annette, and as Annette waved goodbye to the car as it drove away, not knowing, Annette did not know that this would be the last time she would see Renee, her two-year-old beautiful little girl, alive again. Annette had a very hard time calming down that night. She was just agonizing over the girls. She was missing the girls terribly, wondering what they were doing. Did they eat their supper? Were they having fun? And then on the other side of her mind, the darker side, she was worried. She was thinking and fearing the worst. He had better not touch her baby if he lays a hand on her. I hope she's happy. I hope Renee is okay. Understandably, Annette did not sleep well, and she had just drifted off to a little light sleep, but she was awakened by the sound of the phone ringing. Vince answered the phone, and when he answered and listened for a few minutes, his face just drained of color. And he told her, quote, something is wrong with Renee, end quote. Annette ran to the phone. She put her ear to the phone and heard Michelle's voice. And this is what Michelle told her mother, quote, she's not breathing, mommy. No one will come to the phone. Mommy, some paramedics are here and they're saying she's gone, end quote. Michelle started to cry and Annette's world ended and shattered into just a million pieces right then and there. Annette and Vince drove at warp speed to Shane's house. It was about a 45-minute drive, which I'm sure, like, was the longest car ride ever. And I'm sure it seems like hours. Annette and Vince lived in Clear Lake, and they were driving to Alvin, Texas. When they got to Shane's house at 1800 Meadowview Street in Alvin, Texas, there was a whirlwind of activity. There were police cars, an ambulance, and neighbors watching the commotion from their homes. Annette ran into the home and saw the back of Shane kneeling on the floor with his back to her, and in his arms, he was rocking Renee back and forth, and her body was in a white sheet. One thing the book mentioned that absolutely broke my heart almost immediately is that Annette noticed that she was still wearing her purple pants and flower shirt, and Annette mentioned how it hurt her so bad that Shane hadn't even put her in her nightgown for bed. It was Renee's favorite nightgown. She was so excited to wear it, and he hadn't even put her in that nightgown. And I don't know why, but that fact that she wasn't in her nightgown that she loved so much, that just, it just broke my heart. In addition to Shane, Renee, and Annette in the home, Shane's dad was there, Vince, and the other children, Tiffany, Shane's niece, Christine, and Michelle, as well as many other officers and EMTs. Annette felt like huge weights were on her, and she started hyperventilating. She started screaming that it couldn't be. Renee couldn't be dead. She was fine a few hours ago, and then she started accusing Shane of doing something to her, to the officers there. A patrolman named Terry Earl took Annette's statement and wanted her to answer some questions, and that's when she told him that she's had suspicions of Shane for a very long time. 
The patrolman then took Shane into another room to take his statement. Now, the officer on call, Detective Howard Duckworth, was also on scene, and once Renee's body was taken to the coroner, he went back to the Alvin Police Department to kind of organize his notes and start filing his report on Renee's case. Now, the book, The Last uh, Breath, stated that he really didn't take much of Annette's outburst to heart at Shane's house. Like, he said that it was normal for a couple who was separated to start, like, hurling accusations at the other, and sadly, he just assumed that that was the case. Like, it was just like nonsensical accusations from someone grieving and he just assumed he assumed right from the beginning that it was an accident and he really didn't take any more thought into it after that not really as the detective was going over the events of that night and like kind of assembling his notes on it and from his understanding from Shane's testimony that night the events played out like this Shane brought Tiffany, Michelle, and Renee to his home, and Carolyn Good was there as well as his dad and his niece, Christine. Carolyn Good ordered pizza for the girls before excusing herself to go to bed. She had just had dental surgery um, the night before, so she was really tired. She had just taken some meds. She was going to still, she was still recovering from that, so she was going to go relax. Shane told the officers that he played hide-and-seek with the girls. They watched TV, they ate their pizza and other snacks, and shortly after 11 p.m., they began to get ready for bed. Michelle was sleeping in a sleeping bag on the floor, Tiffany was sleeping on the couch, and Christine, Christine, excuse me, was going to sleep on a chair. Renee had wanted to sleep with Michelle, but Shane said that, like, he knew the girls wouldn't be able to fall asleep, and so he helped her get comfortable in a spot he made for her on the floor. Renee wouldn't settle down, according to Shane, so he lay by her, he cuddled her, she fell asleep on his chest, and then he finally laid her back down and went back into his room. He said he got up at 1 o'clock to check on the girls, and then he went back to his room again. Michelle had been woken up by some kind of noise around 3.30, but she then fell back asleep. She didn't wake up again until 8.30. Tiffany was awake at that time. She was sitting on the floor watching TV, but Renee was still laying on the floor. She looked like she was fast asleep. She was laying on her stomach with her head on her pillow. Tiffany and Michelle, after a while, both tried to wake up Renee, but she didn't budge. She didn't wake up, and this was very unusual. Like most two-year-olds, Renee was a very light sleeper. After trying to no avail to wake her up, they woke up Shane, who discovered that Renee was not breathing. He tried to shake her awake, according to his testimony, and he even got a damp cloth to put on her face. He told Tiffany to call 911 while he was by Renee. The dispatcher talked to Tiffany, who relayed the messages to her dad. The dispatcher asked if Renee's airways were clear, to which Shane replied, you know, yes, they are. The dispatcher also asked if Shane knew CPR, but he replied that he did not. When paramedics arrived, rigor mortis had already begun to set in. Now, if you don't already know, rigor mortis comes when the muscles in the body begin to stiffen after death. As I'm sure you know, rigor mortis is determined to accurately pinpoint the time of death. Shane told detectives that Renee had hit her head on the headboard while the kids were playing that night, but she seemed fine. He just added that little detail in his story. The sleeping bag that Renee had slept on the night she died was never taken out of the good family home for any kind of testing 
which is a huge oversight and a huge problem for obvious reasons. But again, they didn't think that this was a a homicide. They just thought right away that this was an accident and they were treating it as such from the get-go. On January 3rd, the day after she had died, Renee's body was taken to the Joseph A. Jakismic's Forensic Center of Harris County, Texas. Dr. Eduardo Buelas was the one who performed the autopsy. When he first started examining the body, he didn't see any evidence of injury. He located an abundance of bloody froth as well as a rupture evident in the cerebral or tonsils and congestion in the lungs. So he ruled her cause of death as undetermined. This particular medical examiner's office had come under fire before for falsely labeling deaths and having to amend their rulings, and that's according to the book that I read. And it it includes more details on this particular medical examiner and the shortcomings that they have, and again, I suggest that you read that book. So this isn't the first time that this ME submitted a cause of death and it had come under scrutiny and it was highly suspect. The preliminary report from the medical examiner stated that Renee had died from pneumonia and there was congestion that was showing in the lungs. Annette and Sharon were just outraged at this. They demanded to know how that was possible. Renee didn't have a fever, she didn't have a runny nose, and she was playing and eating pizza just hours before her death. And Shane would later tell Annette even that he didn't even hear Renee coughing that night, and he couldn't understand it either. Sharon Couch shared with Detective Duckworth about her and Annette's suspicions that Shane had been abusing Renee, and the detective was surprised by this. He said he wasn't aware of any of that, but he would look into it. One other thought that couldn't get out of Annette and Sharon's mind, Shane had told them that Renee was found lying on her belly with her head on her pillow and they never knew her to lay and sleep like that it just wasn't like her so it really stood out as odd that she was found sleeping this way renee was going to be buried at the hallettsville city cemetery renee was buried in a blue sweater and corduroy pants at the request of annette because she said she wanted her daughter to look like her to look like renee placed in renee's casket was some of Renee's favorite things. Her favorite baseball hat that she loved to wear was in her casket, as well as a bunny blanket she loved. And she loved this white stuffed teddy bear, and that was also placed in her casket, as as well as a rosary. Annette was still convinced that Shane had something to do with her daughter's death, even though at first her mom, Sharon Couch, disagreed, if not silently disagreed. Like, she didn't want to say anything. She didn't want to get Annette upset. But she just felt like Shane deserved to be at his daughter's funeral. And she felt like he deserved at least one last goodbye to the little girl. And so, without Annette knowing, she told Shane that he could come a few hours before the ceremony to say goodbye. As long as he was sure to stay out of sight of Annette. Now, I'll admit, when I first heard this, I was kind of shocked. Like, Annette didn't want Shane there. She told her mom that she felt like he had something to do with her death. But Sharon didn't believe her and felt like Annette was just responding and coping with grief by blaming someone. Sharon just could not believe that Shane would do anything to hurt his little daughter or do anything at all to hurt her. Like, that's how much it was out of her brain. She just did not think that he had anything to do with it. When she called Shane to let him know that he was welcome to come for a bit before the service started, he was kind of like, uh, you know, he was quiet. He thanked her for it. But Sharon thought that his tone was kind of cold, 
and emotionless on the phone, and, and it just didn't seem like a father who tragically lost his daughter. But she tried to kind of, like, make up for her thoughts about it, like, okay, you know, everyone grieves. I know everyone grieves in different ways. Maybe this this is his way of grieving. So Shane and his father and brother arrived at the funeral a few hours before it began. Annette wasn't there. Shane appeared uncomfortable. He was visibly shaken. He looked like he had been crying. He approached the tiny casket and tears began to fall down his cheeks. Sharon Couch, who was watching him from afar, had the thought that, wow, he really did care about Renee, or else he at least appeared to, and he was putting on a good show. Shane's brother's girlfriend arrived, as well as Shane's first wife, Kay, daughter Tiffany, um, and they, they came to pay their respects. After a few minutes, the group left, and Shane walked back to the car with Sharon following. Shane lamented to Sharon that Annette thought he had something to do with her death, and while Sharon assured him no, he began to cry again. Without thinking and kind of just trying to be kind and reassure him, Sharon told him that maybe the fall that Renee had earlier when she had gone to the doctor for that x-ray or somehow, somewhere, maybe that had something to do with it, even though the x-ray didn't show anything serious. When Sharon told him this, Shane stopped crying. He went completely expressionless and said, quote, I'd better be going, end quote. It was super cold, and it was enough to make an impression on Sharon and just wonder, like, why was he acting like that? Like, was it something she said? After the autopsy, the funeral, and little Renee's body was buried in the ground, Annette and Sharon were getting upset with the speed, or lack thereof, of the Alvin Police Department. Sharon was doing everything she could to keep the investigation going. She contacted a pathologist's office in Canada who specialized in an explained child death, and that pathologist agreed to look at tissue slides from the autopsy, so she contacted Detective Duckworth and told him about the pathologist's offering to look at the tissue. And she told the detective, hey, here's the pathologist's number, please call them, but Detective Duckworth never called. The detective kind of thought that the case was closed, he didn't really see a reason to continue investigating it, and he honestly started becoming annoyed with Sharon Couch, and he even ignored her calls for a while. The detective didn't know what to do. Like, he had asked Shane to come in for a polygraph twice, which Shane had agreed to do both times, but then he never showed up. Finally, Shane would state that he's tired of answering questions. He's just done. The detective could not see a motive. That was another reason he was kind of pulling his feet on, on kind of pulling the gun on Shane because he could not see a reason for Shane to kill Renee. And he couldn't believe that Shane would do something like that with all those witnesses in the home, the children and his parents. It just didn't make sense to him. Besides, the detective was used to opposite sides of the family, accusing other members of the family. So that in and of itself didn't sway him at all. Sharon wanted answers and closure for her family, and they were certain Shane had something to do with it. It just wasn't adding up for them. Sharon called the Emmy's office countless, countless times, and she had a conversation with Cecil Wingo, who said, one, maybe dust from the sleeping bag she was sleeping in somehow got into her respiratory system, causing her death. Okay. Or two, that there was a rare case out of the country in the Philippines where a child literally had a nightmare and died from fright in their sleep from it. Which, that's just horrifying to think about as a parent, and I won't sleep for weeks now. Okay, okay, bye. But both explanations to me with Cecil Wingo, like, I can't, that can't even be considered an explanation to me. Like, it's such a reach. It's crazy. So, obviously, everyone's looking everywhere else for answers about Renee's death when they should have been looking right at the man 
who held her. The relatives of Shane, including his father and stepmother, were noticing disturbing behavior from Shane after that. Whenever they'd mention little Renee's name, he'd become furious and, like, angry even, and would basically run out of the room to avoid talking about her. Nevertheless, um, his father and stepmother were becoming agitated, which what they called harassment from the police station. There were flyers with Renee's pictures all over the neighborhood, sometimes left in their yard. There was huge billboards with Renee's picture on it that they had to pass almost every day to and from work. And the police station's number was on the billboard as well. But when they called the police to complain about it, the police informed them that, hey, they didn't have anything to do with that, which caused the family to suspect Annette and Sharon. And while Donald Good, Shane's father, was upset by this and bothered by being remembered of this tragedy at every waking moment, deep, deep down, he had his own suspicions about his son. But the question that was in everyone's mind, if Shane killed his daughter, what was the reason? What was the motive? And finally, a motive was found out. Finally. After visiting with a former lover of Shane, Annette and Sharon realized with a call to State Farm that Shane had taken a $50,000 life insurance policy out on Renee. His 18-month-old daughter, who he rarely ever sees or ever visits. He also took out a $50,000 life insurance policy on Tiffany. While Detective Deckworth was given the news of this possible motive, he was assigned to a new division, in a narcotics task force, and he was happy to leave Renee Good's case behind and happy to leave her agitated family behind him. The new officer assigned to Renee's case was a female detective named Sue Dietrich, who was the Alvin Police Department Detective Corporal, which I'm sure you can picture is huge for a woman to be in that position in the 1980s. Um, Detective Sue had lost a young child to a rare and aggressive virus, so she knew exactly the pain that the family was facing and going through with a missing child. And finally, through Sue Dietrich, Annette and Sharon are getting empathy from the Alvin Police Department because they were having such animosity from them that they really felt like no one at the Alvin Police Department was on their side and no one was going to help them. But finally, Sue Dietrich was going to take this case and she was going to help the family. Not everyone shared the belief that Renee died of natural causes in addition to Sharon and Annette. Another pathologist believed something was wrong too. His name was Dr. William Anderson and he, was, he goes by John Anderson and he was located out of Orlando, Florida. He had his suspicions as well and just didn't see how Renee's death was accidental. Dr. Anderson needed the tissue samples as well as autopsy photos, and Sharon Couch promised that she would get it to him. She did anything and everything in her power to get them to him, including calling the Emmy's office, police office, the Brazoria County DA's office, speaking with the assistant district attorney, Jerry Yeen. And Jerry Yeen is going to be mentioned a lot from here on out because Jerry Yeen is very influential in this case. And that is who finally gets to reach out to Dr. Anderson. And through them, through the pathologist and district attorney, they finally got the tissue samples and the pictures transferred. Now, Sharon Couch kept fighting to make things like this happen. She hired a private investigator named P.G. Walls, and he was going to be on the family's side. They were working every day on Renee's case, 
And finally, with the backing of this new detective, Sue Dietrich, and the Brazoria District uh, Assistant District Attorney, they hired a private expert in pediatric forensic pathology, uh, according to an article by the Houston Press, and they finally decided that they needed to exhume Renee's body and conduct an independent autopsy. Sue Dietrich herself went to the assistant DA and presented her the request for the exhumation. The assistant district attorney, Jerry Ying, brought the request for the exhumation of Renee's body to the district attorney himself, Jim Maple. And Jim Maple amazingly agreed to let it happen. And this was huge for Sharon and Annette. Simply huge. It was very uncommon for this area to grant exhumations, and this meant more answers, and they were just ecstatic. Finally, they were going to get somebody else to look at Renee's body with fresh, unbiased eyes, basically, to put it plainly. Now, they had to make sure to not alert Shane to the new news. They didn't want him disappearing. They didn't want him taking off at the first sign of trouble. The detective contacted the agent where Shane had the life insurance policy out on Renee at, the State Farm agent, and the detective asked if they could have, uh, could it all avoid sending him the money. They said that, you know, we don't want this guy to run once he's got this insurance payout. And the agent said, you know, yeah, sure, we can hold the money. Also, when the detective kind of mentioned why Shane hadn't taken it out yet, the agent told them that, hey, Shane needs a copy of the death certificate first before he can get this payout, thus answering the question, you know, why he hadn't taken the money yet and disappeared. Renee had only been in the ground at about eight months at that time. The The exhumation of Renee Good was scheduled for October 7th, 1994. Preparations for the autopsy were underway. The body would be taken to the Oak Park Funeral Home Preparation Room, which I know what you're thinking, like, that's kind of random, but this room had all of the tools that a morgue would have and, you know, plenty of lighting, and so it was going to be the perfect spot for them to do this autopsy. Sergeant Arundel and Detective Corporal Dietrich were the officers overlooking the exhumation of Renee Good, and Dr. William or John Anderson conducted the autopsy himself. During the autopsy, he saw a sign of hemorrhaging on the interior chest wall caused by a compressive force to Renee's abdomen, which he concluded that it only took Renee about five to seven minutes to die, and that's according to the book The Last Breath. Dr. Anderson reported that Renee's death was caused by, quote, compressive asphyxia resulting from sustained blunt force applied to the abdomen and lower thoracic area. End quote, meaning literally, Renee was squeezed to death. And Dr. Anderson then ruled Renee's death as a homicide. Now, the question is how is the Harris County pathologist going to respond to these new findings of the private pathologist? Like, would they accept it? This was going to be a huge ego crush. Like, everyone was really nervous how they would respond to this information that they had gotten a new pathologist. Detective Sue Dietrich went to Shane Good's home and she gave him another brief interview and got him to give her his statement again. He had Detective Sue Dietrich write the statement, but they were in his words. His statement um, was very plain. It seemed very rehearsed. Detective Dietrich couldn't believe like the lack of emotion from his voice. As she was walking to the door to leave, Shane had like the audacity to ask her 
when she thought he'd be hearing from the State Farm Insurance Company. Like, oh my word. Like, he's admitting to the detective that he wants the money from her death from the insurance, and he is also admitting that he's the last person to see Renee alive. Like, he just doesn't think he can be touched. He's just so confident that he's going to get away with this. At this point, the battle of the pathologists, as I'm going to call this next part, is in full swing. The Jackham Psych Forensic Center, who had done the first autopsy, they just flat out refused to accept the findings of Dr. Anderson. And that name's really hard for me to pronounce. I, there's just... I keep saying, like, Jackham Psych and then Jakimzik, Jakimzik. Like, it's just a really weird thing for me to pronounce. I'm sorry. I'm trying my best. Anyways, they had, like, a flat-out yelling match on, for not accepting the findings of Dr. Anderson. They repeatedly and they stubbornly stated that their findings were final, and they did not agree with Dr. Anderson's findings. They were going to hold fast with theirs and kind of just, like, make everything difficult for the state. So, a year had passed at this time, and Shane still hadn't been indicted for murder, leading to increasing aggravation from Annette and Shannon, but things, you know, do take a considerable amount of time. Finally, on December 7th, at 5 o'clock, bright and early that morning, a patrolman delivered a subpoena to summon Donald and Carolyn Good to court. That was taken place, and immediately, they voted that enough evidence was presented to try Shane for capital murder. Once the detectives were presented with this indictment ruling, he was then arrested, Shane, or Michael Shane Good as his full name is, and taken to the Alvin Police Department where he had been numerous times repeatedly saying he had nothing to do with Renee's death. The lead prosecutor for the state versus Michael Shane Good would be Assistant District Attorney Tom Selleck, not to be confused with the Tom Selleck, as well as Assistant DA Jerry Yeen, and we love her. We love Jerry Yeen, and he was uh, Jerry Yeen was going to be Tom Selleck's co-counsel. Now the two of them decided to not pursue the death penalty against Shane, much to Annette and Sharon's anger, because they just didn't feel like they had enough. And they felt like it would be very damaging to the case if they pursued the death penalty. What they were going to go for was life in prison. Now, they had an uphill battle because this case had no physical evidence directly linking Shane to Renee's death. They didn't have any witnesses to the crime. And, like, one of the hardest things is there were two separate conflicting autopsy reports to battle with. Tom Selleck and Sharon Couch's relationship soured tremendously over the waiting weeks. Sharon went to the press to express her frustration over them not seeking the death penalty, which, you know, of course, angered Tom Selleck. She called the first pathologist who ruled Re Renee's case as undetermined, Dr. Bellas, and she asked him to agree with Dr. Anderson's findings for court, despite Tom Selleck urging her to not call anyone anymore, stop doing the detective work on her own, she's just going to be harming the investigation. The two were just budding heads and they did not mesh well like the book talks about it more extensively but it, they just really meshed heads shane retained skip cornelius as his lawyer and cornelius is a very elite very prestigious lawyer in the houston area very very popular and all, an all-around great lawyer 
Now, the book tells of the events leading up to the trial, the ins and outs of the court system so expertly. And I'm not going to go into it super in detail here, but again, I'm sure you're tired of hearing me say this. I highly recommend you read the book, The Last Breath. It's amazing. It's expertly presented. And a lot of work went into preparing for the trial, you know, as usually is the case. And I enjoyed reading about it in this book and getting that perspective of the court. Okay, I'm going to stop plugging this book, <laughs> but go read it. Annette and her husband, Vince, at this time were expecting another child. And Annette's health had gotten really bad with all the stress, this emotional turmoil she was under and preparing for the trial and missing her daughter. And Annette was either going to have to not be used as a witness or else the trial date would have to be postponed until after the baby was born for her health and for the baby's health. So this is a major setback, but the trial was pushed to August and Shane Good was released from jail with an $80,000 bond put up by his father. When he was out of jail, Shane stayed busy working at the Pasadena gym. He worked at his National Guard jobs and he even made appearances at different nightclubs. Texas governor at the time, George Bush, went to an event which Shane Good was present at and Shane was like standing close by. This was one of like his um, National Guard jobs or whatever. And according to the book, Jerry Neen told a concerned caller who found out that Shane was there and, you know, of course, knew Shane's background. Jerry Neen told them, quote, you can tell the governor that he has nothing to worry about. He's far too old to interest this guy, end quote. Because everyone was talking about Shane Good now. Like, his name was in the press. It was a huge media storm. How could a father do this to his daughter? And so, Shane Good was really in the public eye. And everything that he did, you know, people knew about. People knew about it. People were talking about it. This was big, big news at this time. Tom Selleck kind of surprised everyone and decided to resign, putting another wedge in the plans to take Shane to court. But Jerry Yeen was given the lead on the case. Remember, Jerry Lean is the assistant district attorney, and she was going to be Tom Selleck's co-counselor, but now she's given the lead. And a man named Tony Latino is going to be her co-counselor. So this is putting a lot of pressure on Jerry Yeen. She was kind of the one getting all of the research and information for Tom Selleck as the co-counselor. That's kind of their job, you know, to get a bunch of information. So she knew this case. She really knew this case in and out. She'd spent weeks and weeks agonizing over it, and she was ready. The trial took place at the Brazoria County Courthouse in Brazoria County, Texas. The judge was District Judge J. Ray Gale, and they were four women and eight men seated on the jury ready to hear the evidence presented. Shane's lawyer, Cornelius, was trying to argue that Renee had died from SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, and that this entire thing was all just a ploy by a jealous ex-wife trying to throw shade on her estranged husband. In his opening statement, he also said that pathologists would directly refute Dr. Anderson's findings. Uh, and since Sharon and Annette were going to be witnesses, they couldn't be allowed in the courtroom for, like, the beginning part, and for basically anything except for their testimony part. So they had to wait outside the courtroom, and they weren't allowed even to know what was going on or talk with anyone else involved anymore, which, 
I'm sure the waiting was insane, but it's just probably agonizing for them because Sharon and Annette were really on the front lines advocating for Renee ever since she died. And so having to take a step back, having to not know what's going on, having to kind of put your trust in everyone else to take the reins for you, I'm sure that was really hard. And, and reading about this too, it made me think about other families who have to wait for the long, long, drawn-out court proceedings and really, really just thinking about them and feeling what they have to go through. Now, when Jerry Yeen was letting Dr. Anderson share his findings on the stand, after he shared his findings with the court about how, you know, Renee had died from the compressiveness, she brought up a doll and asked him to show and explain to the court by using the doll to demonstrate to demonstrate to the jury how compressive force was used. So the doctor stood up, he held the doll up to his chest facing him, and he squeezed the doll's back, which is so frightening to think about and it hurts my heart. Cornelius tried to paint Shane as a father, you know, not a great father, but one who was trying his best. Even though he's laid on some child payments, he's trying his hardest to meet them and doing what he can. Shane's 12-year-old daughter is called up to testify. Uh, that's Tiffany, which uh, I'm sure that was so hard for her. And she said that the night of Renee's death, Shane took Renee into his room to change her diaper, which was really uncommon. And she noticed that it, it stood out to her, right? Because he never changed her diapers or really took care of her before. And Tiffany had some tears on the stand because she loved Renee and was going to miss her as well. Also brought up was Tiffany's recollection of the 911 call she placed at Shane's behest and how he told the operator he didn't know how to perform CPR. Yeen pointed out that it's weird that someone with the training he'd received with his background in the military, how someone like that didn't know how to perform CPR and not just that, but like didn't even try, you know, to perform it. Like you come up in this situation and your daughter is lying there. You think she's dead. You notice she's not breathing. Try to perform CPR. Like, I'm going to be doing anything and everything in my power to get to get her breathing, to get her heart pumping. And he didn't even really try. Now, the jury went out and they deliberated for a mere three hours before they released their decision, which is very quick. They came back with a verdict of guilty of capital murder. Capital murder. Michael Shane Good was guilty of Catherine Renee Good's murder. Finally, the day had come. Mixed reactions were displayed all around the courtroom. The tearful embrace of Annette and Sharon and Sue Dietrich, the detective. Solemn, cold face from Shane. Not really any expression. Later, Shane's father, Donald, would say in front of reporters that his son was framed. And Shane was sentenced on August 15th, 1995. Of course, you know, he has appeals. And so Shane appealed to the, to, to the Texas Department of Criminal Appeals, asking them to overturn his sentence. Now, four and a half years after Shane is declared guilty, Shane wrote a letter to Annette. And in this letter, he finally admits his guilt from prison. He admitted in this letter that he signed to killing two-year-old Renee. And in this letter, it just makes me so mad. Like, my blood is literally boiling, you guys. In this letter, 
I want you to read it if you read this book, but <clears throat> he's asking for Annette and Sharon's forgiveness, which of course they, they don't give because how can you forgive someone for that? You can't. You just can't. And unfortunately, the confession letter can't be used to fight against the appeal. But if, if by some crazy, weird reason he's ever granted a new trial, then the letter could be used to like submitted for evidence so that's the end of this case you guys my heart just breaks for what little Renee had to go through in her last moments of life I'm sure she was confused I'm sure she was scared at why her daddy was doing this to her and I hope he rots in prison he's a despicable excuse of a human and I don't know, like, his status right now in 2021. Like, I was trying to find, like, um, Michael Shane Good right now. Michael Shane Good in 2021. And he's not popping up. Like, I don't know if he's still alive. I don't know if he died any, or he's still sitting in jail. I looked everywhere, but I couldn't find it. But I know he's either dead or sitting in jail where he belongs because he's not eligible for release. Either way, he's 100% where he belongs. He deserves to rot forever and ever and ever. Anyways, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I I hope you stay safe, you guys. Hug your loved ones. If you have a gut feeling that something's wrong, something's wrong. Listen to your gut. Trust your gut. This is a very scary domestic violence case, but it is an important one. It's one that needs to be shared if you know someone who is in this kind of situation, reach out to them or give them a resource that could help them. You don't know what reaching out can do for someone. If someone's struggling with this, just knowing that there's someone there thinking about them could mean all the difference. So if you know someone who's struggling with domestic violence in their home, in their life, or someone's just struggling, period, be the better person reach out to them and let's just be the difference in the world today. Let's stop stories like this. It's just so depressing. R.I.P. to beautiful Catherine Renee Good. Rest in peace, sweetie. Fly high with the angels. You deserve so much better than this world gave you. Thank you for listening, guys. I'll be back in two weeks with a brand new case. Stay safe.